Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Fiction and Factions, the University of Auckland free public lecture in our 2018 programme. Fiona Farrell's most recent novel, Decline and Fall on Savage Street, is often referred to as a political novel. Twin to her highly regarded non-fiction work, The Villa at the Edge of Empire, the books form a wide-ranging analysis of the response to the Christchurch earthquakes. In this lecture, Farrell considers, in general terms, the political novel. What makes a work of fiction political? Where does imagination stop and journalism begin? What are the special challenges faced by writers creating fiction with a contemporary political element? We hope you enjoy listening. Well, thank you, Paula. The brief for this talk was broad. It's around 40 minutes. Talk about anything, whatever's on your mind. Well, what's been on my mind lately is politics and fiction. Last year I published a novel, my seventh, and it's the only one to be routinely introduced at talks and festivals as political. Now, from my point of view, everything I've ever written has been political. The fact that I can write at all, descendant of Irish famine refugees and dispossessed Highland crofters, that I've been delivered the necessary health and education and readers with money, inclination and time for books has all been over to politics. But why this book? What makes a work of the imagination political? Is it because it occupies a junction between fiction and journalism, fact and fantasy? Is it because references to political events or politicians are embedded in the narrative like hokey pokey and the ice cream? Does it depend upon some notion of authorial intention being not to entertain, but to critique the workings of power? Is it because the text suggests factional allegiance to left or to right, and can fiction that professes to be not political drift free above the muddle of ideas, decisions, actions that we bundle together and label politics? Or is the personal political as Carol Hamish and the 70s feminists insisted, and as every novel, every one of our imaginings, therefore inescapably political. And as a novelist, is there something distinctive about writing political fiction? New Zealand novels begin with politics. With Anno Domini 2000, or Woman's Destiny, published in 1889, the work of a politician, Julius Vogel, 24 years in government, three as premier. It's still in print, and its author's name is attached to a New Zealand literary prize, the Vogel, awarded each year for science fiction, and not to be confused with the Australian Vogels, which were awarded to young writers and named for one of the sponsor's product, the Vogel Loaf. Those Vogels, are named for Alfred Vogel, a Swiss naturopath, who, according to the company website, won the trust when visiting a Sioux reservation near Wounded Knee in South Dakota of a medicine man, Black Elk, who gave him a handful of echinacea seeds as a farewell gift. Back in Switzerland, Alfred set to analysis and processing and the creation of a multi-million dollar in industry. The company site doesn't mention what happened to Black Elk, 
But elsewhere it's recorded that he remained on the reservation, revered as a survivor of the Battle of Little Bighorn and a devout Catholic who was currently being proposed for canonization. His tribe, meanwhile, remain embroiled in the battle to reclaim their lands in the Black Hills. I'm with Carol. You can't escape politics, not even when you're buttering your toast, <laughs> nor when you're writing a novel. Our Vogel, Julius, is remembered now for the public works schemes he initiated, draining, bridging, roading, and for the first woman's suffrage bill, defeated in his term, but which paved the way for the Bill of 1893. By then, Vogel was back in England, the epitome of the colonial success story, spending a gouty retirement penning a novel. It's set in 2000, and the central character, Hilda Richmond Fitzherbert, is 23 and Under Secretary of State in the Cabinet of Mrs Harding, Prime Minister of the Empire of Britain and the most powerful politician on earth. Her seat of government is Melbourne, now a city of two million, where we discover Hilda attempting to avoid the attentions of a nefarious local nobleman, Lord Reginald Parramatta. His secret ambition is to destroy the empire by declaring Australia an independent empire, with him, naturally, as the emperor. But in the novel's climactic scene, Hilda foils his plot captures 2,000 Australians, you've got to love the girl, and heads off to visit New Zealand, where her father has invested wisely in a plan to divert the entire Clutha River to expose the gold reefs in its bed. She travels to view the moment of diversion with other dignitaries in a private aluminium air cruiser that bobs along at 100 miles an hour, 50 feet above the Tasman. She finds true love at last in the emperor himself, Albert, who's fresh from victory over the Americans. They'd been upset that he'd refused to wed the daughter of their president, so decided to invade Canada. But fleets of armed imperial air cruisers have put pay to that, and the empire is at peace at last, even problematic Ireland, and Lord Reginald Parramatta dies an edifying death from wounds sustained in the American war, nursed in his final hours by the saintly Hilda. Reginald, she faltered, I fully, freely forgive you all your wrongs to me. And she sank upon her knees before the couch and prayed. And as she prayed, a faint smile irradiated the face of the dying man. And with an effort to say, Amen, he drew his last breath. <laughs> it's fairly safe to say that New Zealand fiction begins with tosh, not to be mentioned alongside contemporary books like Tess of the D'Urbervilles or Portrait of a Lady. Its closest cousin would be Verne's The Purchase of the North Pole, also published in 1889, in which scientist entrepreneurs attempt to melt the Arctic ice cap to reveal coal deposits by detonating a huge cannon concealed beneath Mount Kilimanjaro. The explosion is intended to tilt the Earth's axis and change the climate. But Vogel lacks Fern's wild inventiveness. A few air cruisers can't really compete with a giant cannon and a plan to achieve what we've achieved with so much less effort by hopping into our cars and our millions to go down to the mall. What's kept Vogel's book in print isn't its science fiction, it's its politics, the digressions, 
where the politician emerges from behind the narrative to outline a new tax system or the necessity for global confederation. We see the man and we see his era. This is a novel of extraction, the fantasy fueling all that manic engineering, burning, draining, the same mood expressed in the heroic demeanour of the loggers, standing by grainy print beside the fallen kauri. Their pride seems misplaced to modernise, but then we've been exposed to another kind of imagining, a world devoid of trees, the extinction of species, the political dystopias of our own creation. The speculative, futuristic frame of Anno Domini 2000 is shared by other titles that always turn up on the Google lists of political novels, along with that characteristic of being anchored in contemporary preoccupations. 1984, for example, where Orwell's everyman Winston Smith and his beloved Julia exist in a future of mass surveillance. It's taken on a new currency in our era of five eyes and digital snooping, while remaining unmistakably a post-war fantasy, written during the months when at Nuremberg, ordinary men were giving their testimonies, just following orders, inflicting unspeakable horror, so appallingly banal. The two-minute hate, the thought police, required little imagining. The other title that usually features on the lists, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, was begun in 1984 as an act of homage to Orwell, and intended in that era of heady feminism as a counterpoint to be the world, as she put it, according to Julia. It depicts a future where women are herded and valued for their fertility, a preoccupation that belongs unmistakably to 1984, the year when Rita Arditi published her best-selling Test Tube Women, describing the new science of in vitro fertilisation, the harvesting of ovaries, sexual selection, etc. Other species, cows, hens and sheep, were being exploited as never before for their femininity, for their eggs, their mammary glands with their valuable secretions, their wombs for the production of two, three or more profitable offspring. So why not women? Recently, Atwood's novel has taken on further political resonance as the West identifies its shadow enemy in Islam and its signature brand, the veiled woman. It's always interesting to see how the politics of a novel are reframed by the preoccupations of a new era. In New Zealand, the futuristic political novel has been best expressed in Carl Stead's Smith's Dream, published in 1971, when it felt as if Keith Holyoke had been in power forever since 1960, and the factional lines were fiercely drawn over Vietnam. Now, both novel and movie adaptation are more likely perceived as action story, another repeat of that timeless male fantasy in which the hero must struggle against a man who is older, dominant, and murderous. But in 1971, a future where the country is governed by a bland, totalitarian populist with the assistance of American-linked armed forces seemed a mere breath away. It's not fictional territory I've ventured into often myself, but I remember how it felt to write the future. My first novel back in 1992 ended with New Zealand as a sun-scorched wilderness after global environmental collapse. Small groups huddle around the few remaining fiercely defended water sources, and at intervals they cull their population by forcing some out beyond the barricades. 
One woman has survived the cull and lives alone, a wizened incontinent old crone on a tiny island off the west coast that in all this desolation is miraculously lush and green. She's reverted to a primate state covered in fur, and one day her peace is interrupted, three strangers discover the island, they come ashore, there's a quarrel, murder, the island withers overnight, and the old woman compels the sole survivor to carry her on his back across the mainland where they stop from time to time, and when they stop and she pees, Springs are reborn, creek beds fill, rivers grow to torrents, and finally, in the ruins of the Omaru post office, she's reunited with another ancient creature who is her sister. And as they curl around each other, rain begins at last to fall. I remember the crazy freedom in imagining such a narrative. It felt close to writing poetry, loose, associative, with a strange logic like dreaming. I also remember how, when the two sisters came together in the post office, it felt as if I'd solved some psychological disjunction in myself and was free to become a proper adult at first, at last. It's hard to explain this precisely, but I think there's always in writing fiction the external narrative, plot and character that are visible to the public, and the private narrative, the writer is telling her or himself, invisible, possibly unacknowledged, but the force, nevertheless, that's driving the story. The political dimension to a writer's work is not always as evident as in Vogel, Orwell, Atwood, Stead. Jane Austen, for instance? In the 2000s, she's white muslin, wet shirts, and simpering sex. But in one of the most interesting books I've read this year by a New Zealand writer, the Otago academic Jocelyn Harris, strips away the muslin. In satire and celebrity in the works of Jane Austen, Harris exposes a writer who was far from being the cloistered aunt insisted upon by her nephew and first biographer, but someone keenly interested in politics from her earliest scribblings to her final work. It was a poem about, written just three days before her death, her skin already marbled black and white with decay. It's a poem, a jaunty little ditty, about the cancellation of the Winchester races. They were an institution in the aristocratic calendar, like Ascot, but in 1817, a volcano in distant Indonesia had exploded. The ash cloud hung heavily over Europe, bringing storms, disastrous crop failure, starvation. And in Winchester, the lords and the ladies, all satined and ermined, as Austen wrote, were assembled, but their revels are brought to an end when the city's St. Swithin sends torrential rain as a rebuke to their dissolution. By vice you're enslaved, you have sinned and must suffer, she wrote. Now chief among the dissolute was the Prince Regent, who'd been charged in his father's madness with ruling the country, and a man that Austin privately confessed to hate, and it was not a word she used often or lightly. She was not alone in this. He was widely loathed, lampooned in a new and popular print medium, the satirical cartoon, as an extravagant, grotesquely bloated libertine. Austin had access to these cartoons, along with that other dramatic new post-revolutionary medium, the newspaper, with its apparatus of editors and journalists and its columns of print critiquing the events of le jour, the day, 
in that blissful dawn when the three old estates, clergy, nobility and commons, were being shoved aside by that crude Araviste, the fourth estate. She lived in a turbulent era, Austin, of revolution, regicide, war, riot, famine, pervasive poverty. Laws were passed to curb dissent, rendering it a capital offence even to, to stir up dislike of his majesty, his heirs or successors in speech or print, and the law was enforced. When the poet and journalist Lee Hunt described the Prince Regent in his paper, The Examiner, as a corpulent man of 50, a libertine over head and ears in disgrace, who's just closed half a century without a single claim on the gratitude of his country or the respect of posterity, he was sentenced to two years' imprisonment and a fine of 1,500 pounds. His wife, Marianne, moved into jail with him, along with three of their children, a four-year-old, a one-year-old, and a newborn baby, and they painted the ceiling of their cell blue to look like the sky. But making fun of power was clearly not to be done lightly. Harris's meticulous book shows how Austen made her fun, encoding political comment and plot, setting characters, sometimes in a single word. Just one example. Where's Sir Walter Elliot in persuasion? Full and extravagant fop cries, can we retrench? In that one word, retrench, contemporary readers would have heard the widely satirised cry of the Prince Regent when asked by Parliament to rein in his borrowings from the public purse. Must I then retrench? It's as if I were to write a character of the past 10 years who repeatedly uses the word opportunity or excellence, words politically loaded with a right-wing resonance that will, in a few years' time, please God, be inaudible. <laughs> Novels stand outside time with their narrative structure of beginning, middle and end. They outlast politics, which are by nature ephemeral, swift and changeable, and can quickly become invisible, detectable only to the skilled eye. So, novels can imagine the politics of the future. But what of novels whose subject is not the future, but the past? The historical novel, which is as much an imagining and as unmistakably of its era as those Hollywood epics where it's supposed to be ancient Egypt, but it's clearly 1934, and Claudette Colbert is reading, wearing the, the wig, or it's 1972, and it's Liz with an awful lot of eyeliner. New Zealand fiction visits the events of our history, but selectively. Sometimes a kind of courtesy seems to be at work. There's no novel set on Flight 901 to view Erebus, for example, nor on the Wahine as it drifts toward the reef. Perhaps in a small country we feel too close. We know people for whom this was not in the least imaginary. Perhaps it's some understanding that fiction is sometimes eclipsed by reality, and stands exposed as an act of ego, a mere display of technical competence. Perhaps this is why the, the, the novels of the greatest trauma in our country's history, the First World War, were written so long after the armistice. Memorials to that event are pinned to the heart of every settlement with their long lists of dead. Less obvious is that war's other dimension, the massive resistance, the protest meetings that erupted when that new political entity, the national government, which later morphed into the National Party, introduced conscription in 1916. There's no memorial to the four MPs 
representing that other new political entity, the Labour Party, Fraser, Semple and the rest, sentenced for sedition, imprisoned 12 months with hard labour for arguing against military involvement. Now, I had no idea until very recently just how large this opposition was, that of 187,593 men who were registered as eligible for service overseas, 77,811 stated that they didn't wish to fight. Not just Archibald Baxter and a few mates, not just religious objectors, but thousands of socialists who saw no fight with their brother workers in Germany. New Zealand Irish objectors also who didn't want to fight for Britain while Ireland wasn't free, and Maori objectors, principally Tainui, who refused to fight for a government that had recently seized their lands. New Zealand has no fiction of that period to equate with Eric Maria remarks all quiet on the Western Front, fiction written by someone who'd been there, knew it at first hand. The contemporary public narrative was left to journalists, though their version seems as fictional today sometimes, now that we've been able to read the private diaries, the letters, the memoirs, as any novel. What strikes most when you're reading the reportage is its tone, the determined jauntiness of dispatches from the front, the Prussian-hearted hun of it all, the chilling cruelty of a report, for example, in the Manawatu Standard of 1915, of the man of German origin who'd hid himself in Collinson and Cunningham's department store in Palmerston North, torn the shop's union jack in strips and woven a noose from which he hung himself over the stair rail. He was of the Grey Rat family, wrote the editor by way of obituary, widely known but not highly respected. Fiction had to wait. It's the wash of colour backgrounding Mansfield's great stories of childhood, those stories written in, 1920, in the 1920s for the brother who had died in Flanders, the darkness behind the luminous beauty of the children gathered to play snap in the wash house at the bay. It's 20 years before Robin Hyde's passport to hell, decades before Shadbolt's play on Chanak Bear, or Elizabeth Knox's haunting after Zedar. As for the savage struggle between warmonger and conscientious objector, it's 70 years before Morris G's plum enters the debating chamber, seeing those old socialists, so much left undone, so much that will never be done. I knew how these important men must feel when they were out of this chamber, when they stood alone. And those fictions, those imaginings, probably are closer to the truth of that terrible war than the politically charged journalism of its era with its omissions, editing and emotive style. This corrective function is present in this country's great historical imaginings. In Paula Morris's Rangatira, for example, where Lindauer's portrait of Paratene Tawai is given his voice. His conversation with the artist is, as Morris writes in the end notes, conjecture and invention. And what brilliant conjecture it is. That dignified first-person account of the voyage and steerage to England, the publicity tour led by a grandstanding egocentric missionary who grabs centre stage along with the prophets, the sickness, the breakdown, longing for home. The voice draws us into that shape-shifting act of empathy 
that lies at the heart of fiction. And when the voice becomes silent at last, there's the author's end note. And they record by James Cowan in 1895, where the old man receives his notice of eviction from his home on Hotaru, as it's turned by government edict to Little Barrier and a bird sanctuary, cleared of pests, of people. The ancient warrior, wrote Cowan, bent with age, would not touch his summons, so it was laid on the ground at his feet. He picked up a manaka stick and danced feebly round the obnoxious paper, making digs at it as though he was spearing an enemy. Morris's fiction lends its truth to current treaty negotiations and the contemporary playing out of this country's ongoing narrative of colonial invasion and appropriation. As a writer myself, I've ventured into the past more often than the future, and what remains with me of that experience is its curiosity, the strangeness even of my own lifetime. I read newspaper reports from the 70s with a mix of recognition and total disbelief. I've used the past to write about the present. A story about Richard Seddon, for example, proposing that he was actually a female with a genetic disorder that turned him male in adulthood because I was sick of hearing and reading in the 80s about the need for strong leaders. <laughs> or a romantic Victorian-style novel about the introduction of mustelids to this country and Mr. Allbone's ferrets because I was caught up in the debate over the introduction of genetically engineered organisms into these vulnerable islands. The past is always available to us, like that ancient cabin chest that can be retrieved from the back of the garage, reworked, and given new purpose as a coffee table. And then there's the writing that addresses the politics of the present, the fractious fault lines that run the length and breadth of this country, the politics of gender and race and class. When fiction writers step out into such contentious territory, it's sometimes possible to hear their sharp intake of breath. It's there in one of Patricia Grace's early stories, for example, A Way of Talking, published in 1975 and one which she chose to open her selected stories in 1991. The story concerns two sisters, Hira, the narrator, who's older, cautious, still at home, about to be married, and Rohe, sometimes Rose, younger, back from the city and university for the wedding. They go for a dress fitting to a Pakeha neighbour. They're all sitting having a cup of coffee after the fitting when they hear the truck turn in at the bottom of the Fraser's drive. Jane said, that's Alan. He's been down the road getting the Maoris for the scrub cutting. And Rose takes a big pull on her cigarette, blows the smoke out gently and says, don't they have names? And there it is. Fiction doing what no other medium does as well, placing its finger on the instant so tiny it could easily go unnoticed. There follows the older sister's embarrassment and anger and later back home, the shift in understanding that is the whole point of fiction, why we tell stories at all. Hira makes a silent promise to her sister. I'll find some way of letting Rose know that I understand. I'm not as clever the way she is. I can't say things the same, and I've never learned to stick up for myself. But my sister won't have to be alone again. I'll let her know that. And isn't that what Grace has done, is doing, fiction by fiction, year by year? You can hear the same intake of breath in Fiona Kidman's groundbreaking A Breed of Women, 
published in 1979, which opens with a woman waking on an autumn morning. This is the day, Harriet told herself. Today I shall lose weight, be better understood by my lover and my husband. Um, today I shall make something new and significant in my life. What she goes on to make is the novel itself, tracing her life from small-town childhood to adult independence, sexual freedom and professional engagement, up to the point where she loses her job, which could be construed as failure, as anticlimax, but no. In the concluding paragraph, Harriet decides. She'd reached a watershed, but it was a timely break for her. Time to be herself, to write down what it had all been like and how she'd arrived at the present in preparation for the future. And again, doesn't it sound like the resolution Kidman has followed through a long career, writing down what it's been like to lead a woman's life in this country, in this era? Then there's that other major political fault line, the main divide, the one where left is set against right. Factional politics in New Zealand are fierce and visceral, though we tend to conceal this unless it's an election year when political storytelling shifts up a gear. It's, let's say, the story of Materia Ture. She's done wrong. She's got that fatal, tragic flaw in her past, like Oedipus accidentally stabbing his dad at the crossroads then sleeping with his mum. She's fibbed to the welfare, and she must be punished, so she's being pursued through a city airport. And a journalist friend of our family says he found himself in the middle of the pack, wondering as he ran, what the hell am I doing? It's a good question. Was it that good old playground perennial chasing a kid to lay cry? Was he the shining agent of moral retribution? Was he just doing his job? Was he taking part in another orchestrated, grubby campaign to weaken the opposition? Was he embarked on some journalistic mission to cleanse the corridors of power, like Woodward, like Bernstein, or closer to home, like Duncan Garner, dedicating heart and soul to, as he expressed it so eloquently, fucking destroy Chris Carter. The sorts of questions Giovanni Tiso also raised in a thoughtful online assessment of New Zealand journalism's role in the Ture narrative and the ready acceptance that once the blood was in the water, the sharks must do as nature commands them. Then Materia's gone, the end, and Winston Peters is on the rope. He's done for, then he's not. He's bouncing back, mid-ring, fist raised, and the crowd is on its feet. And for the most part, the factional fault line, though, remains unremarked. Its presence signalled in the mud pool bubble and plop of the words we use on the surface. Eleanor Catton voices some mild criticism of New Zealand's neoliberal, profit-obsessed, shallow politicians. And she's called a traitor and a whore on Radio Live. And the broadcaster doesn't lose his job, but a few months later is appointed by the minister to the Broadcasting Standards Authority. And below the surface sees the memory of the crowd baying for blood at Hamilton, and the headlocks and batons, and further back this Vietnam, and the argument at pub or Christian table, national mum and labour dad, slugging it out year after year behind the roses on the trellis at Calvary Street. I doubt that in many of those arguments the basis for the divide is addressed, the concept of a free market versus a social contract, Klein versus Friedman, any more than I doubt that the theoretical basis for the factional divide in Northern Ireland leads to animated debate in the local pub over the precise nature of the Eucharist, 
does the bread truly substantiate at the moment of communion to the body of Christ and the wine to his blood? Theory plays a very small part. History, family ties, experience, the batons and the baying, those are the things that nudge us to one side of the divide or the other, left versus right, the great 50-50 divide. In this country, we're not threatened by deportation or imprisonment in a cell, however nicely decorated, for political expression. Though our laws of sedition have been applied in the past with great force, to silence Tafiti, for example, or Harry Holland, while those defamation suits place some restraint on any impulse to publish that which might discredit or cause others to shun and avoid. What restrains us is not so much the law, but something more subtle, supermarket syndrome, that certainty that in a small country, that having dashed off your damning attack, you'll bump into the object of your fury considering the relative merits of the baby peas in the frozen goods section or the chance that careless political expression might affect your chances of promotion, your ability to pay the mortgage. It's not so long ago that letters to the editor were routinely signed with a pseudonym. Outraged of Outram, or mother of four, took good care not to give offence, overtly. Or there's that terrible affliction, good manners, that included politics among the list of topics to avoid at the dinner table among people one did not know well along with vulgar speculation about how much someone earned, and religion, both now consigned to the irrelevance bin. But I think there might still be some hesitancy in coming out to total strangers that you vote Labour or ACT or feel strangely attracted to Colin Craig. <laughs> Maybe this reticence accounts for the fact that our novelists have really followed Plum into the debating chamber. New Zealand has no equivalent to the American political blockbuster, no fictionalised Muldoon figure to equate with Willie Stark and all the King's men, no Holyoke and Bill Such equivalent to the figures in advise and consent. Or to shift the fiction making to television, no Helen Clark, Birgitta Newborg figure working her way through the labyrinth, no adaptation of Hager's dirty politics to equal a West Wing imagining of power. We've largely left the narrative of factional politics to the writers of non-fiction, to the journalists and those super-journalists, the political commentators, Soper, Watkins, Young, Garner, Hoskins, who shape the story and deliver it to us serial fashion, day by day, creating the honeymoon, the fairy tale. There's the story of the poor boy who makes his way in the world by the exercises of his wits, like the clever little tailor, and becomes very rich, and the leader of his people, yet kind, shown at the moment of his accession cuddling a kitten, picked in the kitten, on the steps of Parliament. And then he's international, he's flying to Afghanistan on a private air cruiser, along with a hand-picked selection of journalists and political commentators. The fourth estate, off to the war zone, a glass of bubbles in one hand and a canapé in the other. And his country is prosperous, it's world-class rock star, and then he tires of being leader, goes into the boardroom and shuts the door at the end. Now the regime has changed, and the journalist's tale has gone into reverse. They've been handed a fairy tale, the gifted, beautiful young woman who emerges from obscurity to walk the corridors of power in her feather cloak, her handsome husband at her side, and it could be Kate and William, only better because she's ours. But some journalists don't want to tell that story. They're filled with doubts, with dread. They must blow away the fairy dust. 
We leave politicians largely to the earnest hagiographies and the hardcover bio, and the critical analysis to Bridget William books, or Hager's steady, steely scrutiny, or the cynical eye of Steve Braunius, and the columns that morph into those terrific non-fiction novels like Madman, that 2011 campaign diary like no other, with its multiple plots and cast of peculiar characters that could not be improved upon by the most fertile of imaginations. Novels featuring politicians like Charlotte Grimshaw's brilliant satirical Soon are a rarity here. The summer court in that book is assembled about the Prime Minister, the immensely rich, immensely charming David Hallwright. His ministers and acolytes, the political wives, recline about the swimming pool like so many neoliberal lizards round a waterhole, observed by an outsider, Simon, and his lumpen left-wing brother. Seduc seduction, betrayal, accidental murder and moral failure has politics at its icy, beating heart. Mark Broach, in a listener interview with Grimshaw following publication of this novel, wrote that, in the absence of public intellectuals and given the sputtering light of local journalism, we increasingly look to our novelists and poets to show us things we can't always see. I'd add, or don't wish to see, or are being persuaded, like those readers of the Herald or the Manapatu Standard in 1915, to see through a very partisan pair of glasses. We may rarely venture into the, onto the sunny patios of power or into the debating chamber, but politics, the way we choose to organise ourselves within these islands and the ideas over which we've fought so bitterly are always present. Decisions made decade after decade form the turbulent background to Jake the Muss, or the Deniston Rose, or Kahu astride the whale, or the men Walter Moody discovers assembled in the hotel in Hokotika. Politics are the stage on which Marshall's Larnack reaches for the gun, and the dangerous territory where Wells, Lemmy and Jamie are forced to negotiate sexual attraction, and where Johnson's Howard Shag meets his nemesis. It's the wash of colour behind those other groups of children, Emily Perkins' forests caught in the turmoil that will last in the heart forever, the children in ours to cry, scavenging at the tip, but blessed with that acute sense of beauty that eclipses small-town conformity. The exact nature of these politics can depend upon the reader. Lloyd-Jones' Mr Pip, for example, was greeted by an English reviewer in The Guardian as a delicate fable that never shies away from the realities of daily life shadowed by violence. Matilda, the 13-year-old Bougainvillian narrator, lives in a settlement under siege. Apart from the presence of pigeon Bibles, writes the reviewer, civilization might never have touched the village. Only one white man remains, and through him the children discover in great expectations a bigger piece of the world. In the fertile soil of Bougainville, Mr. Watts' cultural seed has taken root and flourished, instilling in Matilda a moral code. By hybridizing the narratives of black and white races, the author has created a new and resonant fable that unites. Closer to home, however, Selena Tusitala Marsh, reviewing the book for the Dominion in October 2007, was less enchanted. In place of a delicate fable, she read a novel saturated in the politics of colonial appropriation. Instead of something new, she read a very old, played-out story of the continuing canonization of white male voices speaking for, over, or through indigenous female voices. 
The voice, moreover, she says, repeatedly gets it wrong. Would Matilda, born and bred in Bougainville, really label her environment as the tropics? Would she refer to a classmate as the boy with the big woolly hair? Has she seen wool? asked Tusitalamash. And what of the women who hide from the soldiers in the bush, sticking their teats into the mouths of their babies to shut them up? Teats, she queries, as in cows. Why not breasts or nipples? And why is it that once the school closes, the children of this village have nothing to do all day, no food together, no chores, and most astonishingly, no alternative sources of knowledge? Wouldn't these children, she asks, already know, as island people dependent on the land for thousands of years, the many uses of the coconut? We can choose or we can choose not to detect the politics. Sometimes, however, they simply rise up and smack you in the face. In 2010, one spring morning, I was flung into the air. The tectonic plates had made a minor adjustment. It's something that happens here. Right now, we're only 93 kilometres or so above the lava. Sometime it will bubble up. In 45 seconds, Wellington could tumble, or the entire west coast could split from the South Island, or Taupo could erupt, and there'll be cloud and crop failure across the planet. It's just how it is. An earthquake is a seismic wonder, an awe-inspiring few seconds of energy release that renders all human artifice, our buildings, our social structures, our egos, insignificant. We're reduced to infantile surrender, tossed by gigantic hands, and for a few seconds we are united in a visceral experience, devoid of politics. But the moment we return to Earth, politics kicks in. The Christchurch quakes have been a political event. They immediately altered the course of an election. Until the quakes, the mayor, Bob Parker, was presumed finished and his replacement by Jim Anderton a near certainty, but voters switched their allegiance as Parker appeared night after night on television, calm amid the chaos, purposeful, articulate, clad in the hard hat and high-vis vest that were immediately seized upon by politicians running for national office in this country and marketed by the same PR company, conservative politicians in the UK, the currency trader, the old Etonian, togged up suddenly in the camouflage of the working man. The institutions put in place to rebuild Christchurch and the manner of their governance, the way in which the centre came under the direct autocratic control of a central government that had already overturned a democratic regional election, while in the suburbs it was, as Brownlee famously said, all over to the insurers. Insurers unregulated in this country, which was dedicated at that stage to becoming a place where it is good to do business. The manner of the recovery, the abrupt dem demolition of the old, whether repairable or not, the priorities for reconstruction, the, the anchor projects with their focus on the profitable tourist, the introduction of an entirely new kind of public education with its modern learning environments, barn raising 70 or more children, so cheap, so efficient, the very style of the new architecture, all this expressed a particular political mindset, disaster capitalism in action. At first, amid the chaos, fiction fell back. Non-fiction, journalism, especially the work of the remarkable John McCrone, took centre stage and poetry. Lots of poetry as writers reached for the art form that best expresses raw emotion. But gradually fiction sidled back, 
Joe Bennett's King Rich took up residence in the abandoned hotel in the red zone. Jane Higgins's teenagers in the bridge travelled to war in a taxi through an imaginary city in chaos, a novel that she calls her, her quake book and my novel, the political one, written because I've been talking to a man struggling for months with recalcitrant insurers, an exhausting pinpricking battle over details too small to be of any interest whatever to the journalist of this country who was so very eager, with the honourable exception of John Campbell, to insist upon a story of boom and profit and progress in a place where it was so very good to do business. I spoke to this man, married, young family, house a wreck of botched repair, flooding and heavy rain, and I asked him how he'd sum out how it had all felt, and he, uh, how he'd felt about it all. And he said in one word, impotent. And I thought, yes, that's the place where fiction can get to, the tiny, intimate pain where all politics has its origin and its end. Over the past months, I've been watching the Christchurch Library take shape on the corner of the square, just behind the ruins of the cathedral. It's a big rectangle, but in another year or so, it will be completely dwarfed, as will the new cathedral, by one of those anchor projects that are the legacy of Brownlee and the key regime, the new convention center, $475 million worth of auditoria and breakout rooms. The library's a more modest affair, of 95 million. But its exterior looks beautiful in the architect's drawings. Curiously, the words library or wharepukapuka don't actually appear on the hoardings. Instead, the planners promise a community arena, events, whanau performances, interactivity, makerspace, stories, gaming, study, meetings. The drawings show people strolling through a foyer that could be a hospital or airport, the only hint of library, a small bookshelf in the background. The planners promise cafe and retail space at street level to draw people in, for books, it seems, will no longer do it. And nowhere any mention, whatever, of fiction. No children's books, no novels for the grown-ups. I've stood in the square, looking at the hoardings, feeling a bit like one of the last remaining reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, a slide projector, curling tongs. I've asked a librarian who's assured me that there will be novels in the library up on the fourth floor, but it's strange, this public dismissal of fiction. It feels like part of some more general diminution of the arts and humanities in our universities, part of the culture that focuses on the body, on sport rather than the imagination, part of some vast movement of the zeitgeist under our feet that mistrusts the imagination and what it might be capable of conceiving, part of a new global politics. But in the meantime, here we go, the writers of fiction, in our air machines, bobbing along 50 feet above our country, looking down, seeing how it might have been, how it yet might be, making things up, imagining. You. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.